You are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. Welcome to our Living for the Cruise series. Over the past 40 years, since his breakout starring role in the 1983 comedy Risky Business, one of our most enduring movie stars has been Thomas Mapother IV, otherwise known as Tom Cruise. He has excelled in a variety of genres, but most recently mainly in action, and just last year he starred in the biggest hit of his career, Top Gun Maverick. Well, as a follow-up this year, we will see his return to the beloved Mission Impossible franchise, once again playing IMF agent Ethan Hunt. Over the next several months, I will be revisiting one notable Tom Cruise movie each month, and each from a different era of his career, culminating with the July 14th U.S. release of Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning, Part 1. The Color of Money which came out in 1986. It was directed by Martin Scorsese. It stars Paul Newman, Tom Cruise, Mary Elizabeth Monstrantonio, Helen Shaver, John Turturro, Bill Cobbs, Keith McCready, and Forrest Whitaker. The genre would be sports drama. Paul Newman, Tom Cruise, in a Martin Scorsese picture. He's got the eye, he's got the stroke, he's got the flake. Vincent's the best. We got a racehorse here. A thoroughbred. Kid's got a sledgehammer. 25 years ago, I had the screws put on me. I mean, it was over for me before it really got started. But I'm hungry again, and you bled that back into me. Money won is twice as sweet as money. Now, this might be Scorsese's most rewatchable film, or it's at least up there with Goodfellas. I've seen it several times before, but my most recent rewatch was my first time watching it after having finally seen the original Hustler, which came out 24 years prior and was the big screen introduction to Newman's character, Fast Eddie Felsen. I loved it, Bert. I traded her in on a pool game. But that wouldn't mean anything to you. Because who did you ever care about? Just win. That film was actually significantly darker overall. And as a result, the lighter 80s tonal shift of this movie, it feels a bit jarring. Although it does leave the ending now feeling even more satisfying. In many ways, it's a redemption story for Fast Eddie Felsen, even though it's initially presented to us as a more typical sports hero's journey for Cruz's Vince. I don't know, Eddie. Maybe you're right. This game is just for bangers. Cooler. But the thing is, even if it is just for bangers, everybody's doing it. Everybody's doing it. A lot of guys doing it. A lot of guys doing it. And only one guy can uh, be the best. 
From the top down, the cast is just killer. I love the way Newman just devours Richard Price's dialogue with a gleam in his eye at all the right points. I mean, wow, this guy could easily convince me to buy a case of whiskey, and I don't even drink. He just delivers so many gems with a plum. So I'll offer it to you again. I'll play him for 500 bucks. You don't know what to say, do you? Maybe I'm hustling you, maybe I'm not. You don't know, but you should know. So if you know that, you know when to say yes, you know when to say no. Everybody goes home in a limousine. So what should I say, yes or no? You should say no. You know why? Because it's too much money, and I'm an unknown. He should be the unknown. I mean, that would be nice. That would be beautiful. You could play around with that. You could control that. You know what I mean? I'll offer it to you again. I'll play him for 500 bucks. No. Actually, you should have said yes. But how are you going to know that? I mean, it's very hard to know that. It's very complex. As you would expect, it is also a blast to see him matched up with young Cruz here, who brings so much whirling dervish energy to his performance while also still giving him some depth. And let's not forget Mary Elizabeth Monstrantonio, who just kills it as Vincent's girlfriend, Carmen. She might even be the smartest person in the room here, but we'll get back to her in a bit. Beyond that, you have a young John Turturro making the most of his limited screen time as fellow hustler Julian, who might actually be a suitable protege of Eddie's if he wasn't so coked up all the time. And not to mention, we have a baby-faced Forrest Whitaker. I mean, dude was 25 here. He just looks so disarmingly young, who makes his mark during a critical sequence as Amos, a seemingly easygoing pool player who Eddie faces off against and who demonstrates the most effective type of hustling that we will ever see in these films. tight, clever screenplay from crime whiz Richard Price, an elegant bluesy score from Robbie Robertson, and, of course, reliably masterful editing from longtime Scorsese collaborator Thelma Schoonmaker, and what results is one of the best sports dramas slash road movies of the 80s. That's, of course, if you consider billiards to be an actual sport. Well, I do. And this brings us to the categories. The first category, because this is part of the Living for the Cruise series, is the cruisiest moment. Tom Cruise has become such an otherworldly star to the point where many have often speculated as to whether he's in fact a real, living, breathing human being. (laughs) And this would be the moment in this film which most brings that speculation to light. If we're going through the trajectory of his career, most would point towards that iconic scene of Cruz in his shirt and underwear dancing to old-time rock and roll at the beginning of Risky Business as the moment when he first displayed that unique, cruisy star quality. 
And of course, that is an iconic scene for a reason. But fast forward just a couple of years later, and there's a sequence roughly halfway through this movie, which I think is an even better demonstration of the unique appeal of the cruise missile. We find Fast Eddie circling back to Chalkies to round up Cruz's Vince, as he has just found out that the kid returned to that pool hall with the illustrious Belabushka, which is a high-end pool stick. And if he was even just a bit concerned about Vince showboating his billiards acumen for the regulars, which would of course ruin the hustle, well, those fears are realized as he walks in aghast at what he sees and hears. Because it's Vince not only destroying at the pool table, soundly defeating the one player that he should not be defeating this early, but he's making quite a spectacle of it too. To the tune of Warren Zevon's Werewolves of London. Well, I saw Lon Chaney walking with the queen. Doing the werewolves of London. I saw Lon Chaney Jr. walking with the queen. Doing the werewolves of London. Everyone's watching and cheering as Cruz is just vamping around the table, swinging his stick around as if it's a samurai sword between shots, acting out the lyrics of the song, and constantly flashing that big, toothy Cruz smile. It's a perfect demonstration of what Cruz has always done best with most of his other iconic scenes, from, say, the office freakout in Jerry Maguire, to that schoolboyish taunt to Henry Cavill flying in that helicopter in the climax of Mission Impossible Fallout. He manages to achieve the perfect blend of appearing both dorky and super cool at the same time. The next category would be the best needle drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film, because music is essential to film. And as memorable as it is to hear Zivon's song used so well in this standout sequence, it's actually the song that we hear in the very scene before this, which wins this category. Partially because I just happen to love the song, and partially because it's ideal background music to watch Vince gleefully, but prematurely, challenge Moselle, played adeptly by Bruce A. Young, to a game, this time showing him the case for the Balabushka, in a playful attempt to intimidate him. The song is a mid-tempo rocker by the great Eric Clapton from his 1986 album, August. It's a lively mix of Clapton's signature guitar licks, lots of brass, and even some synth in the background. The song is, It's in the Way That You Use It. Good game, good game. What you got in there? In here? Doom. Come on, boy. Let's play. Yeah, let's play. We're gonna have a lot of fun. The next category would be Wasted Talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. And now back to Mastrantonio. She is a force in this story, often stealing the film from both leads with several standout moments, including one critical moment when it's her and not Newman's Eddie who is able to set Vince straight. How you doing? Carmen. Mm -hmm. I'm playing here. Yeah, I know, I know. Listen. 
you win one more game, you're going to be humping your fist for a long time. Okay, Vincent. Pleasure. This no longer recreation. This is what are you doing, meditating? In fact, this role was in the middle of a solid early run for the actress going into the early 90s, including Scarface, The Abyss, and the vastly underrated family courtroom drama Class Action, where she holds her own up against Gene Hackman playing her father. But then, as is often the case in Hollywood, where up-and-coming actors, like, say, Ryan Reynolds back in the 2000s, are given the leeway to make many questionable choices and projects and still to get extended more opportunities for stardom. Well, such is not the case with actresses, especially actresses once they reach their 30s. Master Antonio took on some pretty bad roles right around 91. Most notably, she co-starred as Maid Marian in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves which was a huge hit at the time of release, but she received a lot of criticism for poor accent work and a poorly conceived character who shifts from a strong-willed woman in the first act to a screeching damsel in distress in the third act. Now granted, how the character was written was not her fault, and as much affection as I have for Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, I kind of dig that movie, I can tell you assuredly that her accent work was far from the worst in that particular movie. It's actually Mr. Yellowstone, All-American, trying to portray Robin of Loxley. Woo! You can get word to him of Nottingham's plan. He would believe you. If the sheriff found out, I could lose all that I have. And from that point on, major projects for her just seemed to dry up. Now, she never went away, mind you. Like a lot of the best actresses out there, she still does the occasional feature film and gobs of TV work. And hell, if we're being honest, streaming seems to be where it's at for many actresses over 40 to find their juiciest roles nowadays. Just ask Kate Winslet or Jessica Lange. But seeing just how amazing Monster Antonio was in this movie as Carmen, it was just a reminder of a top-flight movie star career, which could have been. This brings us to the next category, which would be the trailer moment. This is the scener moment that best describes this movie. In most ways, this is very much your typical sports drama, including all of the types of scenes that we have come to expect, including the scene where the grizzled veteran first meets the hot young rookie, the training montage, the triumph montage, and of course the devastating loss for our main protagonist, which sets him back before the third act. We get all those. And now that's not a criticism because every element here is elevated by the performances, the writing, and the direction. However, one common trope that this movie does not contain is the climactic final match. That's right. There are scenes for the first-time viewer which appear to be that scene within the third act. There are at least two highlighted matches in the tournament, including the match between Grady Seasons and Vince, or that semifinal between Eddie and Vince. But they're not. They're not that climactic final battle. And that's part of what makes the sports drama shine above most others. You see, the canny thing that Scorsese and Price do is that they end the story just before a final unplanned match is to occur between Eddie and Vince. A legit battle to show who's better in the end. The teacher or the student. Stings like a bitch, don't it? Yes, it does. You got brass, man. I'll give you that. You want my game? You couldn't deal with my game, Jack. You're outmanned. Let's find out. I'm asking you. I ain't got a leg to stand on, but I'm asking you. Shut it! Don't do that, kid. I call the shots. I do what I want to do. Don't do it. I don't have that many games left in me. God, you used us! You used me! Yes, I did. But you're in Atlantic City now with the big boys. You're not back there in the stock room playing around with baby dolls. Think about it. It's a wash. 
about all that other stuff, I don't take much pride in that. It's even, but it ain't settled. Let's settle it. Why should I? How long do you want me to fry? Huh? Five years, ten years? You want to play kick the dog for the rest of your life? Come on. Let's clean it up. It is the very exchange between our protagonists leading up to that, which qualifies as the peak of this movie as far as I'm concerned. It's a great scene because it not only takes us full circle between these two, it's now Eddie who is seeking this opportunity for his own validation, not Vince. But this is also no longer about money. I mean, hell, he doesn't even care about the money nor the hustle anymore. It's about his love for playing this game and he relishes the chance to share his, quote, best game with Vince. Even though it's not your typical triumphant ending, it still actually feels quite gratifying all the way to that final line and that final freeze frame as he takes his first shot. And now the final category, the MVP, the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. If it is possible to actually agonize over the selection of MVP for a 37-year-old movie, which most folks are really not talking about nowadays, well, that's me before recording this. Because I was torn. You have two masters here, Newman and Scorsese. And while nobody would call this film a career peak for either of them, their work here is unassailable. Scorsese just makes so many interesting choices here, from the creative ways with which his camera moves across the billiard table, of course with the help of DP Michael Bauhaus, to having non-professional actors like Iggy Pop make appearances, the rock singer. The latter of which works quite well because just by virtue of his scraggly, sinewy look, Iggy Pop looks right at home with this environment, especially the way he does his shot. And hats off to Scorsese and screenwriter Price for their unique decisions over what to show and not show the audience from the latter part of the movie taking place during the tournament. But thinking about that ending, it only works with the right actor giving the right type of performance to sell it. And that is very much thanks to Newman. In the lead up to this conclusion, he has done such an effective job of exploring the integrity of Eddie Felsen that we not only buy this ending, but we feel good after that last shot. For delivering in the clutch with the performance that would win him his only competitive Oscar, Paul Newman is the MVP. Eddie, what are you going to do when I kick your ass? Pick myself up and let you kick me again. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Just don't put the money in the bank, kid. Because if I don't whip you now, I'm going to whip you next month in Dallas. You mean Houston? There's nothing coming up in Dallas. Houston, Dallas. And if not then, then the month after that in New Orleans. Oh, yeah? What makes you so sure? Hey, I'm back. My rating for The Color of Money would be five stars out of five. And for anyone who's considering watching this who has not seen The Hustler, well, I would highly recommend checking it out because The Hustler is actually an excellent film in its own right. You could easily, though, enjoy this without much in-depth knowledge of that particular backstory. This movie stands out as one of the great sequels, but it also stands well on its own. And if you're looking to watch The Color of Money, it is currently streaming at DirecTV. And that ends another banger review. Special shout out to my lovely wife, Marlene Gershon, for producing this podcast and to my lovely daughter, Ella Gershon, for assisting in the editing. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Living for the Cinema.